And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, September 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Congress shoves that budget boulder uphill one inch at a time. Plus, the nation's Mr. Whistleblower is nominated to a new referee slot. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Office of Management and Budget is in the process of putting some much-needed direction and guidance in place for how agencies should use and manage artificial intelligence. OMB is laying out about 10 requirements in new draft guidance, parts of which Federal News Network has obtained. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with a scoop of what agencies should expect in the coming weeks. And Jason, I'm presuming you're the one that obtained those documents. I did, Tom. I will admit I have sources in high and low places all over the government. Yes, you do. And I admire you for it. So what is OMB going to lay out here? This is a 25-page draft memo. So let me reiterate draft so things could change. The OMB did request feedback from uh, CIOs, CIO counsel, uh, small agencies, and others about what's in the memo, and then they will uh, continue to refine this memo. In fact, Tom, I had heard from a previous uh, memo was almost 67 pages long at one point. So obviously they're, they're, they're shrinking it down and really focusing on certain areas. And those areas, are, again, 10 requirements agencies potentially will have in the coming year or so to meet to really improve how they manage and use artificial intelligence. And I think, Tom, this is coming from the rise in AI, excitement over, okay, how can AI impact agencies' mission? And then also the White House, they've had executive orders about trustworthy AI. You've seen AI councils pop up across government. You've seen communities of interest. This is the hottest buzz item since, Tom, I would say zero trust was last year. Now, among those 10 requirements, and we'll go, we won't go through them all, but you can see them in my story. For instance, agencies need to name new chief AI officer. So we get another CXO to the bunch. They will have to publicly release an AI strategy. They will have to convene an AI governance board. They will have to talk about what is innovative and responsible AI. One of the interesting things that Tom really came out to me was not just this idea of responsible AI, but they want agencies to start looking at safety impacting or rights impacting AI. And one of the examples they gave is, for instance, voting. Like how can AI impact voting machines or voting systems or in the regulatory world like food and drug safety or even nuclear power? What are safety impacting or rights impacting AI? And I thought that was something that was really interesting in in the memo. And we should point out that the Homeland Security Department is the latest of the agencies to push out an announcement of a newly named AI chief. Justin Doubleday has that story in the next hour. And getting to this issue of generative AI, and I think that's what's put AI on the radar for the average person. Does the memo address that particular branch of AI, Jason? It does. And I think it's really important that OMB is taking a very risk management but active approach. So first of all, the memo says OMB is encouraging agencies to promote innovation and is guarding against and discouraging the use of generative AI. And let's be clear, the memo doesn't specifically call out this tool, ChatGPT, but it does talk about generative AI. Now, they would require agencies to take adequate risk mitigation procedures in place, ensure agencies have access to tools, but it really does discourage agencies from blocking or banning generative AI. And I think this is important because what we've seen over the over the summertime 
was a couple agencies were putting the brakes on their, their employees' use of generative AI, GSA and EPA to name two, while other agencies such as the HHS Administrator for Children and Families said you should use it but put some guardrails around it and make, make sure you're, you're making good decisions when you do use it. So again, I think that's really an important piece to say, hey, we're not going to tell you you can't use it. We just want you to be smart about how you are using it. And, and that's a key piece to the memo. You've got to pick the right application for it, and then you have to pick the right data for it. It's not the same as putting out a tool for the general public to throw millions and millions of pieces of nonsense at it so that it descends into nonsense. You just have to control it, I think, is the main thing here. Jason, among those sources you mentioned earlier throughout the government, you checked around some federal executives and got some reaction to what the OMB has laid out here. I did. And I think generally speaking, the federal executives, both current ones and former ones, thought the memo was pretty good. They thought the memo had a lot of really important things in there. And, and, and the foundation of what agencies have been doing over the last year, like Tom, you mentioned Justin's story coming up about the chief AI officer at DHS. Again, this memo is not out yet. DHS is already naming one. We've seen chief AI officers at HHS and we've seen chief AI officers at DOD. And also Veterans Affairs. And Veterans Affairs has someone who's leading that effort. You're seeing a lot of what agencies have been doing in this memo now getting really codified in a way that gives them a little more oomph. Maybe they need a push. Maybe they need to bring that memo to a deputy secretary and say, look, no, we, we are supposed to be doing this. This is not just a nice to have but a really a must-have. And I think the other thing the memo's doing that I've been told is, listen, it's really focused on good transparency and good policy that I think a lot of agencies may be needing, especially smaller agencies who say, well, we're kind of using AI, like robotics process automation or some analytics, but really how much deeper can we go? And having this memo gives them that ability to go, okay, here's the guardrails we can stay in between to start using, taking more advantage of, of AI. The, the other piece, Tom, I, I just offer about feedback is there's always concern about funding with any memo that comes from OMB with anything that comes from Congress, how am I going to pay for this? So some things don't cost a lot of money. A strategy, a chief AI officer, those things are, if you will, neutral in terms of cost. But there are things, you know, publishing use cases, understanding innovation, trying pilots out, paying for those pilots, getting contractors in place to, to help with those things, training your workforce. That all requires money. We know Congress we may get a shutdown soon, Tom. We may get a CR soon. We also know that Congress is not opening the purse like they had been previously. So I think all of that is, is concerning. I think that's the one big thing that stood out is like, how are you going to pay for it, some of these new requirements. And then, Tom, real quick, the other thing folks mentioned to me was the memo really doesn't go into data and data sources. AI as a tool is great, but if the data is bad or if agencies aren't working toward improving their data or combining data sources, then the AI tools, no matter how great they are, really will not be as effective. And I think that's the other thing the memo should go deeper into, according to the sources I've talked to. Hey, how do agencies improve their data collection, their data management? And that's the role the chief data officer can play. And to the memo's credit, it does call out, hey, this new chief AI officer should work closely with the CFO around budgeting and resources. It should work closely with the chief human capital officer around training of the workforce. And I'm sure that there's some comments in there about the CDO and the CIO. And of course, it's well-timed because all of the hearings on Capitol Hill about artificial intelligence, and you had that group traipsing to the White House the other day talking about artificial intelligence and the safe use of it. So I think the White House wants to be ahead of the curve on this because who knows what's going to come out of Congress. Now you have seen parts of the memo. Any sense of the timeline 
of when the OMB is actually going to publish the memo. We know that they already sent this out to draft comments to agencies at least twice, so they're probably taking that feedback. What I've been told from sources is they will put this out for public comment through the Federal Register, almost like an RFI, Tom. Hey, here's our draft memo. What do you think out there? Send in your comments. And I think that should be happening in the next two to three, maybe four weeks, I'm told. With OMB, you never know, Tom. It could be four weeks. could actually mean eight weeks. So we'll have to kind of keep an eye out for it. But I think they probably want to have this in place sooner than later. Again, a lot of agencies are pressing forward with a lot of these things that the memo calls for. And I think having this memo in place, this guidance in place will help agencies move faster and also take care of any of the stragglers or people who maybe are doubtful that AI can have an impact. But I would say the next step is to look for the public comment period. And I give OMB a lot of credit, federal CIO Claire Martirana and others. They have promised in, in many ways to put a lot of these memos out for public comment because they realize that they don't have all the answers. At the same time, I'll give you just a, the opposite. I've been told the 21st Century Idea Act, another memo that's coming soon unrelated to AI, may not be going out for public comment. And that's a concern that I've heard as well. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. But, but again, kudos to them for at least sure. planning to put this out for public comment. I smell a chief artificial intelligence officer's counsel coming in the future. Oh, they do call for that, by the way, in the memo. So good call, Tom. I've been around too long. I guess they could call it the artificial intelligence community. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And make sure you check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And as we said, in the next hour, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the lowdown on one department AI development at Homeland Security. Still to come, the nation's Mr. Whistleblower is nominated to a new referee slot. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Most federal employees don't have to contact the Office of Special Counsel, luckily. It deals with bad treatment by supervisors, whistleblower retaliation, mistreated veterans. But when you need OSC, you can have a powerful ally. OSC has been led for six years by Henry Kerner. He'll be moving on soon. His term is up. And he's been nominated by President Biden to the Merit Systems Protection Board. For a review of his OSC tenure, Henry Kerner joins me now in studio. Always good to have you in, Henry. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And I guess congratulations on a great tenure. And you are a one-year holdover at this point? Yes. My five-year term expired last year, and I'm in the one-year holdover, which will end on October 22nd. And by statute, that ends my service at OSC. And I've always had the sense you are just optimistic about federal process, about the ultimate efficacy of the federal employment system, even though you deal with where it goes wrong 100% of the time. Absolutely, Tom. We really try to help people, obviously, when they have issues in their workplace. I think it's incredibly important to support whistleblowers. Uh, We do do that. And I've been incredibly proud of the effort that we've put in for the last six years. And you recently had kind of a retrospective review with the OSC staff. And what were some of the fine points that you went over? We went to a conference called FDR. It takes place in Orlando. There were a number of OSC people there. And we did a little bit of a retrospective. It's called a discussion with the agency heads. They have various ones. And I did one where we went through the last six years and talked about what we've achieved. And what have you achieved? (laughs) Um, I think the biggest takeaway is that hopefully – 
we have created an efficient and uh, customer service oriented agency that allows federal workers a safe place to go and file complaints and report wrongdoing in the federal government. Yeah, that's a good point because the operational efficiency of these types of adjudicatory bodies, let's say, can be a problem because backlogs come in Right. sometimes even where you're headed, the Merit Systems Protection Board, for a variety of reasons and not necessarily those of the board. There are buildups of backlogs, you know, when there was no board for two years or Absolutely. Veterans Affairs, whatever. Lots of agencies do adjudication of cases and case loads build in. And so justice delayed is sometimes justice never actually delivered. And so the efficacy of the organization is really important, isn't it? Absolutely. And as you say, sometimes backlogs build up for various reasons. In the MSPB's case, they didn't have a board at all for three years, I think. They had one board member even for the year, year and a half before then. So there's nothing they could do. That's just how it's going to be. Uh, sometimes there are lags, lags in, in terms of how cases are processed. I think a little bit in OSC's case dealt with these lags where we had some internal inefficiencies. So one of the very first things I did is I established an efficiency and effectiveness working group, and they made recommendations. We then folded some units into one, and we eliminated a lot of those lags. And one of the things I'm incredibly proud of is if someone files with us, they get a response usually within two days. Within two days, they have someone assigned, someone reaches out to them, down from about 18 days in the past. And that continues for the case because most cases remain with the same, usually, lawyer for the duration. All right. And talk about the nature of the types of cases, of all the cases that come through and get processed, roughly what is prohibited personnel practices versus whistleblower retaliation, which I guess is a subset of prohibited personnel practices, and then also the veterans' USERA law claims and so on. Right. So we have four big units. One is the Hatch Act. So the Hatch Act obviously uh, tries to ensure a depoliticized workforce. Our Hatch Act unit is incredibly effective in providing advisory opinions and letting the federal workforce know what's allowed. We're also available for questions, and we have a Hatch Act hotline where people can call. So that's Hatch Act. Then we have USERA that you just mentioned. We had a very prominent USERA case recently that was decided I'm very proud of. We had a veteran who joined the war on terror, and he was a postal employee and then tried to get his job back, and the Postal Service wouldn't give him his job back. So we actually represented him, one at the AJ level, but then his case sat during the appeals process because, as we just said, there was no board members. However, he just recently won that case as well, and now the Postal Service has been ordered to take him back and give him back pay. We're speaking with Henry Kerner. He's the outgoing special counsel at the Office of Special Counsel, and that's an egregious case. Yes. And I read some of the MSPB cases, and recently someone at Homeland Security got 10 years of back pay. It took 10 years to adjudicate a case, and they got their job back. Right. What stands out in your mind, looking back over the cases you've overseen, that Wow, how in the heck could this have gotten so far? Well, it's really unfortunate that case I just mentioned, there was interim relief ordered many years earlier. And so obviously, if that interim relief had been granted, the postal employee would have been reinstated. But the Postal Service didn't do it. And so the enforcement can be a challenge because obviously there are appellate rights. Now that we have a fully functioning board, we can get that adjudicated in a timely manner. But at the time, without a board, you can't do that, which once again speaks about how important it is to get, like you said, justice delayed as justice tonight, to make sure that there is a timeliness factor to these cases and resolving them. 
One of the great firings of business history was when Lee Iacocca was let go by Henry Ford II. This was, you have to go back a few years, but uh, it was famous. It was made all the headlines. And one of the things that Henry Ford II commented afterwards to people around him, and it was recorded, he said, sometimes you just don't like someone. You know, mm. he just didn't like Lee Iacocca. He could get away with that. That's not sufficient basis for firing in the federal setting or most corporate settings anymore for that matter. And do you find that most federal managers are pretty good at managing? I mean, given the, let me put it this way, the number of cases that OSC has handled relative to the size of the federal bureaucracy, I think in some ways speaks well of the federal bureaucracy. So that's an interesting point. I think we do a lot of training. I think there's a lot of awareness. You know, we have a merit system. The merit system is supposed to evaluate people on the basis of merit, on the basis of qualifications and talents and skill and not on extraneous factors. We have seen an uptick in cases now that COVID is largely in the rearview mirror. Our cases are going back up. I think as people are returning to the office, even if it's in a hybrid way, there is a lot more opportunity to see misconduct, to of course, also be retaliated against. So we have seen an uptick after a lull for about two to three years. And with the whistleblower end of things, that is always controversial. You know, one person's whistleblower is another person's disgruntled, terrible person. And why are you bringing all of this up? And we've seen in recent years whistleblowers whose case or whose cause is anathema to those of a certain political party. And it runs both ways, like cross swords. And do you ever wish that the politicians would kind of stay out of it and just look at the merits of what it is people are blowing the whistle about? Yes. I think protecting whistleblowers is a bipartisan undertaking, and it's important for the government to function. Obviously, when whistleblowers come forward, not everyone has a case. OSC closes a number of cases. We do an independent and very fair assessment. And so, so everyone has a chance to be heard, and that's really important. And I think there needs to be a recognition that it's not a political enterprise. It's outside of the political system. There's waste, fraud, and abuse in the government, and you have to encourage people to want to tell you about that. And the best way to encourage them is two ways. One, make sure that they're heard and make sure that you do something about it once they tell you. And the second way is make sure they're protected because if you retaliate against them and ruin their careers, they're not going to come forward. They're just not going to tell you anything. And so we all benefit when whistleblowers feel empowered to come forward and to report wrongdoing. And I want to comment, too, on the OSC press operation, because two of your people are sitting here in studio with us, listening in on here, and good to have them in. And we get lots of federal press releases. We look for them, because sometimes there's a nugget of real news. There are agencies, departments, that decided that every other day they're going to talk about how the administration and their secretary put the moon in the sky. And the next day, they order the stars. And the day after that, by golly, you know, human relations are improving worldwide because of this work. You know what I'm getting at. Yes. Your releases are pretty impressive. Uh, they're not every case comes out with a press release. But when they do, I find that they are instructive. You put out releases to the public on cases where you could learn something from this. It's not just a usual, well, I hate you, your desk is in the basement type of case. And so maybe comment on the public-facing outreach to the general audience from OSC? Because I think a lot of agencies could learn from that. I appreciate you saying that. Our communications shop is led by our director, Zach, 
And Hi, Zach. Zach. Zach's here. right here. He's Zach waving. Kurz. And Zach does a terrific job. Obviously, we, we try to decide, you know, we try to make the press releases as, as user-friendly as we can. We also decide which things to highlight. But I do think there's an important function of teaching the federal workforce. So when we have a case, I just mentioned the Ursera case, where someone was clearly denied their rights, it's important to let people know because we want to avoid and, and prevent the next problem. And so by ed- this is educational. The Hatch Act unit is, is great too. We have a, one of the Hatch Act members here as well. She of the Hatch Act unit – it's really important to let the federal workforce know when we have certain cases so they realize what is a violation, what isn't, and they can learn from that too. And like I said, it's a preventative. You can prevent a lot of problems by highlighting issues you've seen in the past. And Hatch Act, of course, goes back, I think, to the 1930s. And, you know, elections are elections and people get pretty passionate about one side or the other. Sure. In my history of watching these things, I would say elections are getting to the point now where you can't have Thanksgiving Day tables. Politics are verboten across the country. It's getting to be like some kind of a South American thing with respect to people's political positions one side or the other. What has been the trend in Hatch Act in the six years you've seen? More cases and more egregious cases? I think the trend we've mostly seen is we've gotten a lot of complaints and a lot of awareness. And so because the Hatch Act has gotten some attention – a lot of attention, in fact, recently. People know about it. People use it. Sometimes people use it mistakenly. So, for example, just uh, during the election seasons, the Hatch Act advisory opinions shoot up. I think we did over 1,400 just two years ago. And even in non-election years, that's another thing. It used to be in the Hatch Act world, if you had an election year, everything would ratchet up, and then in the year or two after, it would get very quiet. That's really no longer the case. You have Hatch Act advisories, and you have Hatch Act issues bubbling up at all times. So it's now a you know, sort of all year, every year, whether it's an off year or an election year, it doesn't matter as much. And in terms of the cases, because you have all this awareness and because you have it in the forefront of a lot of people's minds, you really do need to do an, an extra good job of educating people, of telling them what's allowed, what's not. You said the law is from 1939, which it is. Well, how do we apply it to Twitter? How do we apply it to, to today's social media, today's all the stuff that's happening today? And so it's really important to let people know how our unit views those kind of potential. Yes, that's a good point, because at one time you could maybe, you know, have a baking sale for, you know, the Eisenhower administration and then go to work and no one would know the difference and you were straightforward in doing your federal job. Nowadays, with all the social media jazz, it all blends together and people can see what you're doing regardless. That is a complicating factor in all of this. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, don't forget, you have a phone on you and a lot of people work hybrid schedules. So they're at home. So now you're working, so you're on work time, but you're home. You also have your phone and your computer and, and all that. So the, the blending of the official and the personal function has been dramatic. And so that's why it's so important for people to seek out advice, to check with their DAOs, to have ethics officials, and to really make sure that they stay on the right side of this law because Hatchet can have significant consequences. And You can and lose a job over you, you a Hatch can, Act violation. Absolutely. So that's just something to be aware of, that it really can have significant consequences. So we want to make sure that we're as helpful to people and let them know how to abide by it. And getting back to OSC as just a small federal agency, your six years had something in the middle called the pandemic. Right. right. And how did that affect things and how is it getting back to normal for you from the small agency, small independent agency perspective? Yeah, not only are we small, we're also independent. So, you know, a lot of times you're kind of part of a greater 
uh, organism, we're independent, so we have to make our own decisions. And the most important thing we did is we shut down. We shut down the entire agency on March 16th of 2020. We're one of the first to make that decision. We were completely remote. Shut down the office, not the agency. Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. Shut down the office in terms of going to the office. So we went completely remote. That was a challenge for our IT because while we had some remote capabilities, it wasn't set up for it. We had computers that would melt because they weren't used to being used that much because we all, of course, had different computers at the office. And so we really had to have the IT people make sure that we were able to function, and we did. And, of course, one of my goals as the agency head was I need to keep my people alive, right? I mean, this is a scary disease. I don't know what it's going to do. We made the decision to go remote, but now what? And so we were really scared. We also had a COVID task force for the federal workforce where we tried to intervene. We called them course corrections early on to to save lives too because people were being pulled in to do COVID check-in who weren't trained to do that. They were landscapers and other people at other jobs. But they got pulled in to do that because, of course, everyone was panicked. But they didn't have the proper equipment, protective equipment. So we would call in and make sure that people like that were protected and so they would have, you know, protect their health. So just all these these different factors that come in, and of course, it affects your ability to do your job in the first place because you no longer have in-person meetings. You're not used to your normal routine. You have to create a completely new routine. And I'm very proud of the work of my colleagues at OSC, both from the support staff, from the IT perspective. We had the equipment necessary, and then we had terrific outcomes. The COVID task force had over 800 cases that really saved lives. We also had a whole number of other uh, what we call favorable outcomes, you know, where people got a good corrective action. We had record numbers the last couple of years, up to 417 last year, which is the highest number ever in the agency's history. And that's while most of our employees were still working from home. You asked about how it's been since. We've tried to reintegrate to some extent. So we have a hybrid work environment. We're two days in the office mandatory and then the rest is uh, from home. The numbers are still very good. People are still very efficient, but we also now have more of the collegiality and sort of these serendipitous meetings where people can talk to each other and also get to know each other. Some people some people have worked together for three, four years. They've never met. So that's now changing. Right. I was going to say, it sounds like you're not overly exercised about the great question of the day, back in the office or not back in the office. And there's all sorts of pull and push and tug of war going on among the federal unions and the White House and federal managers kind of seem caught in the middle here. Well, White House wants them back. A lot of members of Congress want them back. The unions say, well, why? You know, because everything's working pretty well and so on. Sounds like you're not getting exercised over that. Two days, people are meeting each other. It works. Leave it alone. I mean, we made a decision, (laughs) so I'm not exercised because I made the decision and I feel good about it. I think some people, I'm sure, would prefer not to come in, and I get that. Some people moved far away. They they live far away. They have an hour and a half commutes, so I'm sympathetic to that. I think we have the right balance. I think either 2-3 or 3-2 is sort of at the center where this works. It gives people the flexibility to have some time at home that they've kind of gotten a little bit used to where they have some – it's at catch-up time too. When I'm in the office, I have meetings all day. I'm busy all day. I'm meeting people all day. On Thursday and Friday when I'm not in the office, I catch up. I read emails. I can read a document. I can think about it. So it actually works really well in terms of those two functions. I think it works for OSC. Obviously, I'm, I'm leaving next month, so we'll see what happens after my departure. But I hope we've set a pretty good marker where that will continue. Now, just presuming you are confirmed for the MSPB, the MSPB is different from the 
Office of Special Counsel, but there's some confluence there. You're in the same general area of looking at what happens to federal employees. What is your expectation for MSPB in terms of relations with OSC? And do you share case law from time to time, the two agencies, just because, again, you don't do the precisely same thing, right. but they seem pretty closely aligned. Yeah. So as, as you say, I was nominated. I appreciate President Biden nominating me. And thank you also to the Republican leadership, Leader McConnell specifically, for uh, having confidence in me. So I've been nominated. At this point, I, I'm just beginning my Senate confirmation process. So I I'm not going to comment on my on MSPB outside of my special counsel duties. Correct. From the special counsel's point of view, having a fully functioning MSPB is incredibly important because there's a couple of things we do that are essential. One is we get stays, formal stays from the MSPB, which means if an employee, we, we evaluate their case, they file with us, we think there's a lot of merit to it, they may have been retaliated against, we can get a formal stay from the MSPB that keeps them in their job. So they're not unemployed, they're not, obviously there's a great disparity in, in wealth and income and, and, and resources. And so we want to protect that as best we can. Now, we don't seek stay in every case. Obviously, we do do a very important check and culling of sort of the facts. So that's the first thing we do with MSPB. And the second thing, of course, is they adjudicate our cases. We can bring cases there. We bring hatch cases there. We can bring retaliation cases there for corrective action, for disciplinary action. And as the MSPB has come back, we have started to do that. So we have a more robust litigation function. We really appreciate having a robust and and working and, and dedicated and diligent MSPB. Now, in Washington, there are probably a couple of dozen law firms that have a specialty practice in federal employment and so on. It seems like you could walk into a partnership at any one of them. Why go to the MSPB after six years of distinguished service at the Merit Systems Protection Board? What keeps you going here? I've really enjoyed my my stay at OSC. I've I've appreciated the dedication to the mission from my colleagues. It's an incredibly positive place to work. I love going to work. I love seeing my colleagues. Obviously, we've had challenges. COVID, first and foremost, we've had other ones. We had a 35-day government shutdown. Uh, our independence was a little bit. It may in not doubt. be the last one yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. But uh, it's really important to, to for the function of LSC to to be able to continue. So I've I've loved the job. I think if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed by the Senate, I think the next step into the Merit Systems Protection Board is just a logical another step that keeps me in this community that I love. Henry Kerner is the outgoing special counsel at the Office of Special Counsel. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. And we should also note, as we just said, he's a nominee to the Merit Systems Protection Board. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. With government shutdown on everybody's mind, the Senate this week is trying to fashion a package of three bills. This, as the House seems to be at war with itself, or at least one party. We get the Capitol Hill update now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. 
And so the Senate is the one where the action is right now, actually, with a little bit of progress toward a budget. They've made a little progress. They spent most of last week trying to get on to this three bill package of spending measures. And now they'll spend this week on it, discussing the the bills themselves and then amendments that they want to make to them. Um, That's the first three that have hit the floor during this fiscal year for the Senate. And the House at this point has passed one and has struggled to get any others on the floor. The big standoff last week was whether or not to bring up the defense spending bill. They went to the rules committee, teed it up, and then stopped going any further with it. So we'll be watching this week to see if the House can get back on track with that measure or some of the other measures. Um, And those would be the full year bills that would tackle everything between now and September 30th of 2024. Um, But we are also tracking what's going to happen in the short term because barring some magical agreement, something has to happen by September 30th to overt a government shutdown. So for a faction of the House to go along with anything, what is it they want out of this? That 1% reduction from 2023 levels? Well, that's something that would occur automatically under the the debt limit deal. The the provision there is if you still have a CR going in past January 1, that there would be a 1% reduction in the spending caps. But um, there's a lot of different things cooking out there and and this recipe that might get them from here to some sort of stopgap spending is evolving as it was last week you know there's discussions about what to do about the ukraine aid that the president has asked for that democrats are behind that senate republicans and some house republicans are behind as well but ukraine funding is a sticking point um, disaster aid there's more consensus about doing something around that, but it's going to need a vehicle. And then there's a lot of interest still in border security provisions and maybe pairing some of the funding with that. So how you kind of thread the needle with those different demands and those different needs might be key between here and there. Um, And some people may not want to vote for a CR under any circumstance. If there's more than four of those, then Kevin McCarthy's problem gets pretty acute. Right. And he has to give up that nice wooden hammer or something if they they get what they want, that anti, you know, faction there. I guess the visit impending by the president of Ukraine is well-timed. Absolutely. He's flying to the U.S. primarily to go to the General Assembly, but our understanding is it's going to come down to Washington as well and meet with members of Congress. So he'll probably make a very in-person plea to them for more assistance. Um, I think it was about $24 billion that was asked for over the recess by the president, and that is what's at stake right now. But um, if they get to that defense appropriations bill, there was an amendment that was made in order by Matt Gates to stop assistance to Ukraine. So, you know, there's a lot to work through there. Um, those personal appeals have worked in the past. We saw him come to Capitol Hill before. So something to watch for sure this week. Is there any movement on the National Defense Authorization Act, where in the House there is that hold on the whole thing over the social issues we've talked about, funding for abortion travel and so on? And then there's the hold on military officers. This is beginning to be like a broken record here. Yes. Well, the NDAA has gotten through both the House and the Senate and could go to a conference or at least informal talks at any point now. But what you said is correct. The part of it that's the core defense authorization, you know, how much to authorize in total, they're almost aligned. And you can see the classic puts and takes when it comes to some of the other programs that the Defense Department oversees. But the sticking point really may be the social issues that were in the House bill that took it from a bill that came out of 
committee with very bipartisan backing to a bill that was passed by the House with on a very much party line vote. So we'll be watching that closely. That's a little bit more behind the scenes. That legislation is more of an end of the year necessity than September 30th. It would be nice to have it in place, but a lot of those authorities run more of a calendar year. So we'll be, again, watching that one very closely. But the social issues in that bill are also some of the things that are going to make spending talks harder because all of the House spending bills have those, while the Senate went a very much more bipartisan approach in writing their 12 appropriations bills. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And there's some other issues Congress is dealing with, including something that probably affects some regulatory agencies, probably the TSA, if nothing else, if it goes through a pipeline. But that is the restrictions on liquid natural gas are coming up. What's going on there? Well, the House is going to take up a bill this week while they work behind the scenes on the spending issues to lift restrictions in law on the import and export of liquefied natural gas. So this is part of Republicans wanting to unleash more traditional sources of energy. Um, They've pushed back, obviously, on some of the approaches that Democrats took, especially in their um, reconciliation bill from 2022 that had a lot of green funds in it. Um, But this is, you know, their approach to try and open up more energy business, basically, for the United States by importing and exporting that. So um, that's one of the measures we'll see on the House floor this week, in addition to, you know, the talks that we're monitoring so closely. And there's a package of health bills that might be of interest to the government coming up there, too. That's right. This is a package that three key House committees have worked together on. The Energy and Commerce, Education and the Workforce, and Ways and Means Committee all share healthcare oversight. And they've worked on some proposals to reauthorize some expiring programs. One of the biggest is for community health centers, but it also has provisions on drug pricing, which have obviously been of interest. And um, pharmacy benefit managers, which I think you and I have talked about, and if you turn on a streaming service or, or watch TV, you get a lot of ads about them and their role in the pharmacy and medicine processes. Yeah, there's more ads on that than there have been since Hillary Care, (laughs) if you remember that far back. Exactly. And and there's some bipartisan consensus on doing something. Um, the, the companies themselves have pushed back and said some of the things that have been talked about in Congress would be harmful. But um, Congress is moving forward with at least a few things in this package. We're looking for a House vote on that as soon as this week. And then we'll see what they can do in the Senate. Um, these are some of the extender provisions that could ride along somewhere else if the the longer term deals aren't ready, but much like, you know, FAA and Farm Bill and other programs that are coming up for renewal, that kind of forces Congress to act and, and write some bills around that. All right. And interestingly, telework came up in the House last week. And what was interesting is that there's not this unanimous Republicans want everybody back in the office all the time versus the Democrats. Go telework all you want. There seems to be bipartisan realization that, guess what, before the pandemic, there was a lot of telework already. Right. So I I think that there's a push to have agencies at the very least re-examine what their policies are, how they want to approach things. Um, Telework existed and some of the language that's been brought up before is return to your pre-pandemic telework stance. Um, What were your plan in 2019? Maybe readopt those. So we'll see if there's any language in spending bills that get signed into law that, that deal with this. Obviously, there's with any workforce issue, there's union issues to deal with and what agreements do you have. Um, but there is there have been bipartisan calls for a return to the office from President of the United States, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who want to see more people downtown and stimulating the economy there. And obviously, folks on Capitol Hill as well are looking for for some sort of path forward on that. Um, so we'll, we'll see if this results in anything, but it was a chance to air some 
some of these ideas that people have, questions that people have about the current telework policies. Who knows? Maybe the food trucks could come back someday. We miss those some days, don't we? We sure do. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Department of Homeland Security is pledging to master the use of artificial intelligence while also using it safely and responsibly. DHS's top official, Secretary Mayorkas, recently signed a new AI directive and named the department's chief AI officer. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. I guess they're catching up to Veterans Affairs, which has a chief AI architect, Gil Alterowitz. What's the latest on what DHS is doing here, Justin? Well, in August, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, signed out a new policy statement on the acquisition and use of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies by DHS components. This is really the first across-the-board DHS policy for using AI and acquiring AI, a pretty significant thing there too. Uh, This policy was required by the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. And it says DHS must indeed master, that's that's the quote, this technology, applying it effectively and building a world-class workforce that can reap the benefits of AI. At the same time, it says DHS will use it responsibly and in a trustworthy manner. They'll have to rigorously test these algorithms to be effective and they'll ensure that it safeguards privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties as well. So really a policy that tries to cover all the bases here on how DHS components could use AI-enabled systems going forward. Another quick note, it says DHS will not collect, use, or disseminate data that actually makes or supports decisions based on biases around race, ethnicity, gender, national origin, religion, all those types of things. So explicitly states that as well. It sounds like they're pretty much in sync with the way the federal government across the board is going at AI, as we heard earlier in Jason Miller's reporting. That's right. I mean, DHS's policies come as leading AI executives meet with members of Congress and point to the need for regulations and other guardrails. And this really quickly progressing field of, you know, generative AI and and all these related AI and machine learning technologies. DHS earlier this year established an AI task force to focus on specific applications of AI. Mayorkas' latest memo establishes an AI policy working group that will look to implement this new directive and then come up with actually something a bit broader and more formal a bit more uh, permanent on the instruction of AI throughout the DHS. President Joe Biden is also expected to issue his own executive order on AI later this year. And the Office of Management and Budget, uh, as we've heard from uh, our colleagues at Federal News Network, is is floating draft AI requirements for federal agencies. There's a lot of churn in this space right now, so there's a lot going on. And let's talk about that idea of an artificial intelligence chief, a chief AI officer. I guess that's four letters. A chow, you might say. And let's dig into that. Who is it and what will they do? Yeah, DHS announced that Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen will serve as the department's chief AI officer. He's keeping the CIO title. He's being dual-hatted as the chief AI officer. He'll be uh, the one primarily responsible for promoting both AI innovation and safety across DHS. He's actually testified at a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing last week, and he talked about how DHS is already using AI to combat fentanyl trafficking to investigate, you know, child exploitation crimes. 
and then to verify traveler identities at airports. And with regards to law enforcement use, of course, that's a big use case for, for AI at DHS. He says AI is decision support for law enforcement officers. I want to assure you that we are leveraging AI uh, as decision support for our law enforcement officers, but that ultimately our officers are the ones responsible for making law enforcement decisions. Uh, I also see tremendous potential to use AI to remove uh, repetitive paperwork and administrative tasks that our officers have to do that they would tell you and they tell me dulls their focus from their security mission. And again, that's Homeland Security CIO and now Chief AI Officer Eric Heisen. And Justin, you're also reporting there's some more recommendations from all over for how DHS should get out this AI. What are they hearing and who's telling them? Yeah, the Homeland Security Advisory Council this week actually issued draft recommendations to DHS on AI. And the council met last week, excuse me, to to approve a draft report and recommendations on uh, how DHS should approach this big issue. One of the big recommendations was creating a centralized office or group to ensure DHS keeps pace with the rapidly changing technology. Of course, we've got the chief AI officer now and a couple centralized groups who are looking at this. Another one was encouraging DHS to pursue off-the-shelf commercial solutions wherever possible instead of building everything in-house. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was present at that meeting last week. He spoke about the need to change the procurement capabilities at DHS to keep up with this technology. He also talked about how DHS can't try to use AI for every mission and use case. We're going to need to prioritize what aspect of our mission should we really double down on to harness AI, because I worry about diluting our focus too much. And I really do want to demonstrate very as quickly as is responsible how this could really be a game changer for us in advancing our mission. We have to pick our spots here, in my view, somewhat surgically. Surgically. Okay. That's the word from Secretary Mayorkas. And Justin, besides these new AI policies that they're in the midst of developing now, they're also putting guardrails around something that just seems to be a constant bugaboo, and yet it has provided so much productivity in passenger processing at airports and elsewhere, and that's facial recognition. What's going on there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, DHS on September 11th issued another first across-the-board policy on the use of face recognition and face capture technologies. And as you pointed to, this is a, a big deal. Uh, these The use of these technologies continues to be controversial. There's concerns that there could be bias in these technologies, which are often recognized as a form of artificial intelligence. So it's certainly connected to DHS's use of AI. The policy directs DHS components to only use face recognition technologies that have been thoroughly tested to ensure there is no unintended bias or disparate impact in accordance with standards set by places like the National Institute of Standards and Technology. DHS's science and technology director is officially made responsible for overseeing the testing of these technologies. And it also mandates that face recognition technologies can't be used as the sole basis for law or civil enforcement related actions. So they're setting some guardrails here around face recognition technologies, because as with AI, DHS is increasingly relying on those technologies across a lot of their missions. I think facial recognition worries a lot of people because that was the original place where 
bias was discovered because algorithms had been trained on a database of faces that included only certain characteristics, you know, all white people or all males or whatever the case might be, and then it doesn't do good on everybody else. And I think that's part of the problem, that they want to make sure they, they train it right and then deploy it right. So this is yeah. all happening, and the AI officer job at DHS then is effective immediately? That's right. It's effective immediately. Uh, you know, Eric Heisen, DHS CIO, is, is that chief AI officer. And it, it sounds like they're going to move to really look at a lot of their policies and, and try to both support implementation of AI across DHS's many components, but then also make sure it's done responsibly as well. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.